the obelisk. The obelisk is the key. Greetings and salutations and welcome back to the obelisk. Today's show is a pre-recorded episode that we did back in September, September 13th with uh, Dr. Andrew Kaufman. He's a psychiatrist out of New York who's been very vocal about various medical countermeasures that have gone down uh, over the last three years. And we had the opportunity to talk to him for about an hour and he's a really nice guy. We really appreciate his time and his insight, and I hope you all enjoy the uh, the interview. Take care. Thanks for agreeing to the interview and coming. It's like I said, it's an honor. Now, if not, if not three years, I don't remember when I first found you. <clears throat> and then when you started getting together with Dr. Cowan, that was amazing because I've been following him for a while too. So uh, thank you for all your work Yay. there. Oh, you're welcome. He just came to visit uh, um, this weekend. Oh, did he? Yeah, we we don't live too far from each other. I thought he was in California for some reason. He uh, he moved to um, the Hudson Valley of New York near Albany. Excellent. um, Like in the beginning of the pandemic. So that's where all his chicken is. Chickens are and goats. Yeah, yeah, that's where his homestead is. That's (laughs) right. It's great, great, cool. So, um, uh. An interesting thing I found was that uh, your background was in your psychiatrist and um, you were very vocal at the beginning of the pandemic, uh, just about everything that was going on. And uh, what what tipped you off that this was not right? And what part of your psychi- psychiatric training <laughs> led you to believe this? I mean, did you... I saw pretty quickly that it was it seemed to be a psychological operation in some in some degree to some degree and I wonder if you saw that too and 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 how that played into your whole uh, dissection of what went on yeah well I think my psychiatric background was actually kind of critical in fact when i look back over all the different careers i had because i've i've had several different careers leading up to forensic psychiatry which i really no longer practice but it it was the forensic aspect so forensic psychiatry is a subspecialty of psychiatry and there are several of them like uh, child and adolescent psychiatry is another subspecialty and this involves the interface with the mental health system and legal and administrative processes, uh, such as court proceedings, uh, criminal and civil penalties, um, fitness for duty, and those types of evaluations. But the principle of forensic psychiatry, and you know, in forensic psychiatry and in psychiatry in general, there's no hard science. So in other words, everything is subjective. There's no blood test that you can check and say someone has depression or schizophrenia. They are all based on an objective uh, opinion. So there's a standard of evidence that is fairly low and definitely way below the scientific method. And what the convention was in my profession was that you had your opinion with reasonable medical certainty. And in order to achieve that, you had to be very thorough. So you would review a lots of records um, in an important case or a bigger case, like, a, for example, a murder uh, trial, which I participated in one of those and testified in the trial. There were records that were from the jail. There were uh, employment records. There were school records. There were mental health records from childhood. There were interviews with family members um, and friends. And then there was the evaluation of the individual who I was making an opinion about. So this amounted to thousands of pages. And much of it was completely irrelevant. But nevertheless, you had to go through it and find any relevant facts or details that could speak to the opinion you were trying to answer. And it's a very rigorous and one of the skills that you develop is pattern recognition where you see patterns of behavior and then that leads you to ask more detailed 
and nuanced questions that can get closer to the truth. And I'll just give you a couple of examples because one time I was interviewing someone who seemed to have uh, very significant psychotic symptoms at work, like they were hearing voices or seeing visions, but it took two and a half hours of interviewing and rapport building with that individual before they were comfortable enough to fully disclose what they were experiencing, and it was exactly that. In another situation, uh, there was a public servant who had made accusations of sexual assault from a fellow public servant, and I interviewed her for nine hours over two days in order to get all of the details because the material was so sensitive emotionally that it took a lot of hand-holding and kind of going around, uh, beating around the bush to get to the heart of the issue. So this was really a rigorous and in-depth exercise um, and a, a way of fact-finding and, and making opinions. So when a number of things happened leading up to this psychological operation, as I believe you correctly refer to it, was that in December of 2019, I came across some work from Alpha Vedic, another podcast mm -hmm. with Bear Lando and Mike Winner, where they were discussing a book about Louis Pasteur and Antoine Béchamp. And uh, I think it is the uh, Ethel, um, D. Ethel Hume is the author. And this is the first time I heard about Béchamp and the first time I heard about the theory of pleomorphism, which fits under the terrain umbrella that I know we'll, we'll probably discuss a little bit later. And this opened me up to the possibility that, that things in germ theory may not be fully true. And that correlated with some other material that I heard from Dr. Jennifer Daniels, and she was one of the um, individuals, and she's a doctor who used to practice in Syracuse, where I was based at the time, so there was an interesting geographic connection with her. And she talked about how several illnesses that are said to be caused by viruses didn't have the evidence of such, like that Koch's postulates mm -hmm. were not proven, and such as things like hepatitis C. And I had also heard Dr. Kerry Mullis, the Nobel Prize winner, and I had interestingly looked into his work because he has a lecture about climate change, uh, debunking some of that science, and uh, he's a Nobel Prize winner, of course, so that is uh, quite a hefty qualification, and he's not the only Nobel laureate who criticizes climate change, uh, by the way. Even Patrick but Moore is... <laughs> is yes, poop, yes, uh, now, so. yes, yes, absolutely. But... Kerry Mullis also had this lecture about that he couldn't find evidence of the existence of HIV. So I was kind of primed with these stories that when I was traveling to California from the East Coast in February of 2020, I saw people wearing masks uh, at the airport, which I'd never seen before. And this was long before any lockdowns or mandates mm -hmm. uh, occurred. And it made me um, very, very curious. So I found out about the videos with, you know, people collapsing in the street in Wuhan, China, and heard that story. And then I started looking into it because in the news stories, it said that there was a novel virus. So I decided to just go right to the primary evidence and let me find the scientific paper where they discovered this virus. And at that time, of course, I, I really had no knowledge of how virologists discovered viruses. I made some assumptions about it, you know, that you would find them in nature, that they were very, very tiny, and you'd need to see them with an electron microscope. And of course, I had seen images in medical school uh, that were called viruses, uh, as well as computer graphic artist renderings of viruses. But I really didn't know what the procedure was. And when I began reading the papers, I quickly understood that they made all sorts of assumptions. Like, for example, before even beginning the experiment, they already were convinced that they were going to find a new virus. 
even though all they had were some people with atypical pneumonia in a hospital. Mm -hmm. And atypical pneumonia is, it's called atypical, but it's, it's common. It's seen every year, and it basically is a situation where there's no clear diagnosis for the doctor. In other words, they might do a bacterial culture and it comes up negative, and they might do some you know, PCR type tests for common viruses and those would be negative. So they would just call it atypical pneumonia, but it's quite common. And sometimes it's might even be referred to as community acquired pneumonia. And that's what these people had, but there was this assumption. And then upon further reading, some things really stuck out at me that there was a very, very tiny number of patients that they were looking at, like less than 10. And I thought, you know, if there really is something significant like this, there should be hundreds of people to take samples from. And then I saw that the experiment that they did was very strange because there was no independent variable. And having published my own original research, I know that there are two critical things that you need for every study in order for it to really be scientific or to conform to the scientific method. One of those is you need an independent variable, and that's the thing that you're testing. Like, So, for example, if you wanted to do an experiment, does salt increase the boiling point of water? You would need to add salt and only salt to the water in your experiment because that is the independent variable you're testing. Is salt causing something? And in this experiment, they never separated out the virus from the biological f fluids and other potential viruses or other compounds or even microorganisms that might be in the sample. And they also did something which I would call a simulation, where they simulated the growth of the virus in essentially a test tube or a culture flask with a foreign genetically modified cell line, or in one case, with lung cancer cells. And I'm thinking these genetically modified cells, they don't grow normally and they don't represent human tissue. So this is a very strange experiment, but there was no independent variable. So they never separated the virus and only showed it or tested it for anything. And then the other requirement for a scientific experiment is a control study where you include everything except the independent variable. So for example, you would take the water and in the experiment you would add salt to the water and then you would measure the, the temperature at which it starts boiling when you apply heat to it. In the control experiment, you would um, put nothing in the water and or you might put something besides salt, like you might put sugar in the water and see if that makes a difference. And you might do both those experiments, actually, because you want to know for sure that the salt, the thing you're testing, is actually what produced the effect of changing the boiling point. So in this experiment, you'd want to have a sample that had everything else in the sample that the virus had, but except the virus and that would be a, a control experiment so that you'd know that doing this cell culture in the laboratory itself doesn't produce the results that you say are only due to the presence of a virus. So at first I was like, how could these studies even get published without being <laughs> scientific? Um, and it was perplexing. And then, then I had this realization that the particles that they were showing in the images that they were calling viruses. And by the way, there, there's no way that they could say that these particles were an actual virus because they didn't measure any of their properties other than their appearance. Mm -hmm. And we know that um, there's this whole other field of research in extracellular vesicles, or sometimes these are referred to as exosomes, mm -hmm. and that is a, a word that most people are now familiar with, yeah. I think, because of, because of what I talked about, is that you cannot differentiate these exosomes, which are natural breakdown products of our own cells when they're damaged and dying, from what they point at as viral particles. And, you know, later on, I found out that they actually published several papers where they stated this outright, that they can't differentiate viral particles from cellular breakdown products 
without doing some other kind of confirmatory test that that assesses the property of the particles that they would be able to do what they say viruses do. And so once I determined that there was no factual or scientific evidence that there was any virus causing any new disease, and of course also there was no evidence of a new disease because there were no unique symptoms or unique pathological findings. Now over time that um, there was a lot of uh, ways that it was propagandized and things were made up like long COVID so that you could take people with other health conditions and say that they had COVID and that's what made it unique in some way, right? But that was all done much later after the fact. So once I was armed with this information, I looked at what else was going around and I saw that um, one of the old tricks of the trade was being used to generate fear and that is computer modeling. Mm -hmm. And I've come across this before. Actually, I helped set up a computer modeling department at a biotech company for the purpose of drug design. And they sent me to like a three-day course to learn how to use this very complicated software that was doing lots of computational modeling, um, taking into account all sorts of uh, atomic and chemical theories, like to do energy calculations and uh, you know various types of hydrogen bonding and all this complicated stuff. And you were supposed to be able to put in a crystal image of a molecule and then see how your other molecules that you make up from scratch would interact with it, and then that would guide your ability to do drug design. But what I noticed is that you had to make a lot of assumptions and put in values that you didn't know what they were in reality. And that depending on how you set these assumptions or starting conditions, it could really make a huge difference in your results. So you could call this a fudge factor. Mm -hmm. And if you were unscrupulous, now we were trying to develop drugs that actually worked, right? So, and that's what would make us money. So our incentive at that company was to use it as accurately as possible. Because if we did it wrong and then spent all the time and money to actually make the chemicals to test them in real life, uh, it would be a huge loss if, if we came up empty. So, but for others, I could see that if you had certain motivations, it would be very, very easy to manipulate the outcomes in order to make them fit a theory or fit some kind of political agenda. Mm -hmm. And later on, I saw that this is exactly what they had done in the field of climate science yep. um, using computer models. And if you, you know, you can go back and verify that these models were wrong in every situation because they made predictions about the future and this was years ago so you can look at what really happened and see how wrong they are but there was um, a academic uh, shill named um, Neil Ferguson um, in the UK who basically fudged a computer model to generate fear saying that this new illness was going to kill millions and millions and millions and that fear was the impetus to generate lockdown policies and mandatory masking and even ultimately to encourage uptake of the experimental injections. Mm -hmm. So putting all this together, you could pretty clearly see that this was a psychological operation where they invented the appearance of a health problem. And through fear and the nocebo effect and then through very destructive policies, not just for the general public, but in medical protocols, they ended up killing quite a number of people mm -hmm. and making it appear as if they died from a disease when, in fact, they were just simply uh, killed by a number of different mechanisms that varied uh, regionally and by institution. Like a 40-cycle count PCR test, right? Well, that, that wouldn't kill anybody, but that no, would no, no. label you. Right, right. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, clearly any test where you're testing for something that doesn't exist, it can't be accurate. So every result that you get is 100% false, whether right. it's positive or negative. But, you, you know, I also then found out about uh, Event 201 mm -hmm. and the SPARS uh, um, event. Yeah exercise exactly where and also the 
document from the Rockefeller Institute uh, from Lock 2010, step. lockstep. So mm -hmm. you could see clear evidence of how this was uh, very precisely planned out mm -hmm. in advance. And they even used a lot of the same buzzwords from those planning <laughs> events, uh, you know, directly in there. So all of this put together, you can clearly see how this was uh, one, the biggest, perhaps, uh, PSYOP ever conducted on a global scale. Yeah, it's, it's, <clears throat> it's crazy what we've been through. And uh, do you remember before, I guess it was like the summer of 2019, when there was this mysterious vape illness, vaping illness and pneumonia that people were getting? Did you ever look I into don't, that? I I remember hearing that there were a lot of emergency room presentations of people with acute lung injuries of some sort uh, that was associated with vaping, but I didn't look into it too particularly. Mm -hmm. But I did see the whole pattern that emerged with the vaping industry because at first, you know, the first time I ever saw a vape was in the VA clinic when I was in my training as a psychiatrist and I walk in there one day and there's a guy right in the waiting room just vaping up like crazy and I'm like what is that <laughs> they had no rules or regulations about it at that time and you know many veterans were like chain smokers so right. it was kind of like heaven for a while until they made rules about it but what you had at the beginning was a, 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 sm a lot of small companies were getting into this market they were using pretty straightforward materials like the same kind of liquid that is used for asthma inhalers and putting nicotine and some flavorings in there and uh, not you know all kinds of fruit and candy flavors at first it was like mm -hmm. you know different tobaccos and mint and things like that right. and you could see that some people were using this as a safer way of smoking and some people were using it to quit and it was gaining popularity but at some point the big tobacco companies started buying up and consolidating all these small companies yep. and kind of taking over the market. And as that occurred, they changed the formulations and began adding uh, addictive and harmful chemicals, just like they've done to tobacco exactly. in the cigarette industry. And I believe that the health problems uh, were a result of that process. And maybe the companies were putting things in there that they didn't uh, realize were going to be quite as harmful as they were. And um, and there were some health consequences uh, as a result. Yeah, it was it was interesting that, that <clears throat> there was a global pneumonia, whatever COVID thing. After that, it was almost like a I don't know. I don't know if they're related. I just found it interesting that they were well, so close. The, the thing is, if you really look at at the numbers, and they're so fudged with statistical models, it's hard to distinguish. You really have to look at uh, the totals. There, there were no, you know, in order to give the appearance that there was a new type of pneumonia or respiratory illness, they had to take people out of other categories. Right. So, right, we saw like almost no cases of the flu. Exactly. Uh, or we also even saw reductions in heart disease um, and respiratory disease that were relabeled as COVID. Right. So, but the total number of people with respiratory illness was not any different. Right. It was just all the way that it was labeled and presented and mm. rebranded exactly. Yeah. So, so there's no reason to believe globally that there was any respiratory toxin that was disseminated, although that may have taken place in certain locales yeah. in order to bring about the appearance of a scary uh, illness, like perhaps, Milan. you know, there's a lot of a lot of things that happen <laughs> in northern uh, Italy, yep. um, and uh, there's a gentleman who did excellent research about that, Michael Bryant. Uh, you can uh, find his blog and, uh, and see his article on that. Uh, are you familiar with John Cullen at all? No, I can't say that I am. Okay. He's done a lot of interesting work about how his his opinion is that COVID was a cover-up for some other type of pathogen that was released. Well, the thing is, uh, there's simply no evidence of that. He, he has some evidence. Mm. Well, on... he may have, he may have evidence that that some laboratory was working on something, but I don't think he has any evidence that of the actual pathogen out in no. the in the wild. No, no, no. And that's I'm, really I'm... the uh, the mm -hmm. only evidence that would 
tell you if that happened or not. But I can, you know, further elaborate that if you examine all of the science that claims that any kind of germ, whether it be bacteria, yeast, fungus, or virus, causes any illness, you'll find that there actually is no evidence of that whatsoever. Um, all of the scientific experiments that were done in that respect have disproved it. Um, there are unscientific experiments that are put forth to claim these things, but once you read them, you'll, you'll see that they're uh, quite ridiculous, and you, you cannot draw any conclusions from them. So if there were going to be some kind of man-made germ that causes illness, it would not resemble anything in nature. It would have to be a completely novel invention. And I think that's uh, highly unlikely because if you think about it, the, the only way to go about doing that would be some kind of you know, micro machine, like some kind of robots that could go around and inject poison. But if you're talking about something that would cause you know, one human to pass an illness to another, there's simply no model of that in nature. It's been substantially tested in scientific experiments and never they've never been able to pass an illness from one human to another in an experiment. Well, uh, was that May the I work? ask a question? Yeah, go for it. I'm curious about the relationship with, say, electronic signals. So, like, the activation of uh, pathogenic manipulation of biosensors or sensors that affect the innate immune system. Is there a, is there a causality here? Is there a dynamic relationship between the two. So this, of course, invalidates germ theory further, but I, I'm not sure where you stand on that. Well, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what, what you're asking. You're, are you asking if some sort of electromagnetic sim, um, exposure could cause something specific or? Well, that certainly is a dynamic to this and a, a factor to consider. But yeah, it, say uh, some sort of electronic signal that could, in fact, cause something that looks like or acts like something attributed to what is considered a germ pathogen. So but I've already flu. said that uh, there's been no increase in the respiratory illness, so there's no reason to find an additional explanation. Okay, so there's no electronic component here. That's all I wanted to get at. Wait, an electronic component of what? Of like, it. if there's no illness to explain, then why would you need an explanation? Well, I'm talking about if there is, I'm talking about illnesses in general. So, say, take a hemorrhagic fever. Is there a component here that an electronic signal could activate such a such a um, something well, like that? I'll, I'll tell you that, uh, that there's definitely no evidence of that specific thing. There is one study that I found because I, I want to say that there's a lot of claims made about what 5G or other EMF may cause, but there's very, very little research of toxicology uh, on this technology. And in fact, the companies, the, the communications companies have not even fully disclosed exactly what the technology is, like what frequency it's operating at, what amplitude, um, et cetera. Nor so have they it, done any studies on the harm caused by it, if any. Right. Well, we, well, we saw the director of the FCC right, saying that they're not going to do it <laughs> specifically. Right. Uh, right. They don't want to stand in the way of progress. Uh, so what I've only found is one study that's an actual uh, clinical study, and it's, it's used in laboratory animals. And this was done in Russia during the Cold War. But later on, it was uh, public made public through a Freedom of Information Act request from the CIA. So the CIA had actually obtained this research through their espionage activities um, kept it hidden and then disclosed it later on after so many years uh, after the Cold War was over. And in this experiment, they, they did use a specific uh, frequency that's commonly associated with 5G, but we don't know if 5G really is at this frequency. And the animals in the experiment, when they were exposed to a significant dose and proximity of this radiation, they did develop health problems. But the health problems were really... Um, 
their whole body. And what they said was that it disrupted the oxygen flow from the blood to the mitochondria and resulting in a multi-organ failure. And the kidneys seemed to be the most susceptible and had the most significant degree of organ failure. But there was also a failure in the bone marrow and depleted uh, cell counts in the blood. So this is a little bit similar to uh, ionizing radiation exposure almost um, in some of those characteristics. So if there were some kind of untoward exposure, I would more expect to see those types of symptoms with multi-organ failure, uh, low blood counts, and the blood oxygen level would not be diminished because the the oxygen got into the blood fine, it just couldn't get into the cells or into the mitochondria, according to that research. So if people had their pulse ox values were low, it would not be consistent with that type of an injury. Now, that being said, what the actual 5G is could be a different technology and may have different effects that we don't know. Uh, one other thing we do know about this kind of radiation is that it has been used uh, for crowd control mm -hmm. in warfare. And when it's you know used this way, it causes a burning sensation in the skin that makes people retreat because it's too painful to advance. And as you get closer to the source, it gets more intense. So this is another thing if we saw that. Now, we, we do know from people who are exposed to various types of radiation and dirty electricity, like um, smart meters, uh, if they're living in very pro close proximity to a cell tower or if they have strong Wi-Fi routers in their house, they can get some mild problems. But those usually are things like uh, ringing in the ear, nosebleeds, um, migraine headaches, uh, you know, visual problems or eye fatigue, um, sleep pattern disruptions. Those are the most common types of experience people with too much exposure from those devices, uh, in my experience and research. Thank you. Great. That's all awesome. So did you say that was Michael Bryant? Yes, the, with the research about Italy? Yes. Yeah, yeah, very uh, meticulously done. I want to check that out. All right, cool. So, yeah, um, what you were talking about dovetails real nicely into the whole terrain theory versus germ theory. Uh, as far as pathogens not not being proven to cause disease. Was it was that Bashamp who, who was doing that? I, I don't remember who it was. It was like putting having someone with the flu cough into the mouth of another person. Was that... Was that him or someone else that I'm thinking of? Yeah, but, no, that that uh, was uh, Rosenau. Okay. Uh, I believe it's Milton Rosenau. Those were the contagion studies from the Spanish flu, mm -hmm. right? Um, where none none of the uh, none of the people got sick. Um, Bechamp did ex was a microbiologist, and he did experiments with microorganisms and fermentation primarily, and he was a contemporary of Louis Pasteur okay. uh, and Claude Bernard. And Claude Bernard was really kind of on Bechamp's side, and Louis Pasteur has been exposed now as mostly a self-promoting fraudster mm -hmm. uh, rather than a real scientist. And Bechamp did experiments with fermentation, and fermentation was considered an experimental model of infection in, by some. So fermentation is, you know, how you make beer and wine and how you make vinegar, where you give a sugar source, usually a plant sugar of some kind, to microorganisms, and they metabolize it and make some product, either, you know, acetic acid, which is vinegar, or ethanol, uh, which is for alcoholic beverages, or they can make other things as well. Um, they can also convert sugar, making grape sugar. Uh, and that's one of the uh, types of um, fermentations actually Bechamp studied. And so since you have kind of microorganisms that are living on some kind of biological material, that's how this could be somewhat of a model uh, for infection. And uh, originally, uh, Bechamp thought that the microorganism that performed the fermentation had to come from the air and did a variety of experiments in flasks, and when he didn't expose the flask to the air, he didn't get the conversion of sugar. Mm -hmm. Now, later on, um, 
he, now Pasteur actually went with that and didn't follow Béchamp's subsequent work because after that, Béchamp determined that if he put the right minerals in the flask, that even if it were sealed from the air and couldn't get any microorganisms from the air um, using, you know, sterile water, that he would still get the conversion of the sugar. And he, in other words, there must be microorganisms already in the plant material that has the sugar or, or something else he added to the experiment, but it turns out it was that. And he then later on looked under a microscope and found that in biological or organic materials as well as in mineral material like, like mineral chalk, that he found these tiny little particles and he called them, I believe, microzyma or, you know, tiny bodies and that they could change shape and become different microorganisms like bacteria and yeast. And this is essentially the same as we're told about stem cells, right? That we um, are made from embryonic stem cells, which form, you know, when the egg and sperm fuse and during the growth you know, of the uh, embryo, that there are these stem cells, and the stem cells become every different type of cell in our body. So these were like stem cells for microorganisms. And so this could say that if you had, for example, microorganisms growing inside your body, which we all do, in fact, probably 10 microorganism cells for every single human cell in our body, if, if the whole cell theory is correct, mm -hmm that they actually come from inside of us. They don't come from the outside. Interesting. And, you know, we kind of knew this through some types of experiments or observations. Like, for example, if we have gangrene, right? Gangrene is, is what happens when a part of your body dies. Like, for example, let's say you get really severe frostbite and the tips of your fingers actually die. They're no longer alive. And, you know, people might have seen images. They turn black. Well, that, now you have dead tissue that could be toxic and needs to be recycled, right? Nature never lets dead tissue stay around, right? It always recycles it, decomposes it. Mm -hmm. So the dead fingertips start to decompose, but they don't decompose by bacteria from the air landing on the surface and decomposing it from the outside in. They decompose from the inside out with bacteria that comes from your own tissue and it undergoes anaerobic metabolism because there's no oxygen inside your dead finger tissue and it eats it from the inside out, right? So we, we can easily observe this. We know that, that it couldn't come from the air or the outside because it's sealed off to the outside. And this leads to a whole different interpretation of what's going on when you have an increased number of bacteria at a site of disease in your body. That um, and the you know sort of theory of pleomorphism uh, would dictate that these creatures evolve actually to clean up a mess or to recycle their nature's recyclers. And this is just the same exact thing that happens in the compost pile in our backyard that these organisms come out of the waste material that's put in the compost pile. They start eating it from the inside out, and they, they make waste products. And we know if we put animal parts like meat into the compost pile, it's going to smell pretty bad. And that's because some of the waste products of these microorganisms are pretty nasty stuff. right? We've seen this with rotting eggs, for example, where hydrogen sulfide is one of the waste products of the microorganisms that break down eggs. And uh, we can smell this rotten egg sulfur smell mm -hmm. from that. And that's what can happen in our body as well. When we have damaged tissue, like if we have strep throat, for example. Now, we know that streptococcus is there in people without strep throat and people with strep throat. So it's not the cause. But when the throat tissue is damaged, it grows there because it, it will eat and recycle the dead and damaged cells from the lining of your throat and its waste products will stimulate inflammation which 
increases the essentially washing of that area by having us make secretions, you know, mucus, snot. Mm-hmm. That that simply, you know, the waste water from the washing machine. <laughs> and uh, we need that to flush things out um, so the bacteria break it down and then the, the waste products get flushed out of the body so that the tissue can repair and renew itself. And that's the everlasting cycle of nature. And uh, is that the process of, what is it, apoptosis, that whole... Well, apoptosis or apoptosis is uh, what's known as programmed cell death or Mm -hmm. senescence. Mm -hmm. And cells can die in different ways. They can, when they get older and outlive their function or their their lifespan Mm -hmm. and the different lifespan for different types of cells, uh, they can undergo this self-destruct program, apoptosis. It's very neat done the cell breaks down into smaller particles which of course could resemble what what they viruses. say viruses look right, like right. Uh, they're called apoptotic bodies generally speaking and then the body can dispose of them properly and then new a new cell will uh, take its place but cells can also be destroyed by other forces you know by mechanical stresses sure. uh, like cu- cuts and crushes uh, by chemical damage um, and many other things uh, radiation etc um, and they can die in different ways, like they can undergo what's called necrosis, which is another mm-hmm. type of uh, not as very neat and programmed, uh, more of an ugly, destructive yeah. kind of cell death. Caused by some bacteria now, allegedly. The, uh, well, like that's the allegation. Necrotizing uh, fasciitis, right? Is yes. there a relationship with like the mycoplasma here and all that within terrain theory? Well, mycoplasma is just another form of bacteria, so it would fit in that pleomorphic cycle. And, you know, what it, what seems to be the case, and there's different ways um, of looking at this, that in different timescales and for different situations or different tissue types, the body um, tends to evolve different forms of bacteria, right? Like the throat is very commonly, it's the streptococcal forms, right? But the skin has the staphylococcal forms, right. Uh, in skin infections or, you know, when when they're basically cleaning up damage to the skin. So there is this kind of tropism um, and variability. Uh, When you have more chronic tissue damage, then eventually you get yeast and fungal forms. So those people that have, you know, toenail fungus and uh, candida and things like that, they have a much more chronic effect. And the bacteria that were sent previously were un- unsuccessful in resolving the issue and so there's sort of different uh, species and uh, different healing programs that get enacted over time cool <clears throat> so uh, the next thing I wanted to talk about was terrain theory in general um, I'll let you describe it and I don't want to ruin it <laughs> well that's okay and and you know it's um, terminology can be sometimes problematic in these arenas because uh, terrain theory is not a proper scientific theory. It's really a, a paradigm of looking at health and biology. And there are several different theories under it. So the pleomorphic theory or theory of pleomorphism that I've just talking about is one of those uh, theories under the terrain rubric. Okay. And But essentially the underlying uh, theme or ideas is that the quality of the terrain or the environment, the milieu, uh, determines uh, the health. So you could observe this readily if you are a gardener. Uh, Let's say that you want to plant uh, an apple tree. Right now, there you know that if you plant it in the right place, it could do well, and if you plant it in the wrong place, it's not gonna. It might not even grow at all. Right. So it needs the right terrain. You can't plant it under a heavy canopy in the forest. You have to plant it where it's going to get good sunlight. Right. And then it's going to need certain soil conditions, maybe a certain acidity of the soil, certain types of drainage, uh, moisture conditions, all of these characteristics. And if and by the way, there's a very thorough and interesting plant research on this. Um, if you put that plant or the plant is not in the right terrain, it's not going to thrive. Now, even further than that, 
Um, if it's not thriving because it's not in the right terrain, nature will send various types of organisms to recycle it back to the ground so that another plant can grow in that terrain, which will be able to take advantage of it. So this, this research came from an entomologist who was employed by the pest, uh, pesticide industry because, you know, we know we, that uh, farmers who plant monocrops often have this cycle where their, their crops are unhealthy. Yeah. And then at first, you know, there are weeds and they use herbicides and then there are insects and they use pesticides and then there's fungus and they use fungicides. And there's that, that like sequence. And that's very similar to the sequence I was talking about in the human body. Uh, where you start with different bacteria and you end up with yeast and fungus. And fungus is, seems to be the final common pathway to recycle uh, diseased, you know, organic material. So they assess the health of plants by something called the BRIC score, which is a measure of how much photosynthesis. So how, you know, how much is it eating and growing the plant? And if it's eating and growing a lot, it's healthy plant. And if it's not eating and growing much, it's not healthy. And what they found is that certain pests will only eat plants that are damaged to a certain degree. Hmm. So plants that are fully healthy, almost no insects will eat them. There are a couple that might eat them, but almost none of the pest insects will eat these plants that are fully healthy. Now, if the brick score is a little bit lower, let's just, you know, f for argument's sake, say oh, it goes down to 80% of the optimal. Well, then there will be a certain species of insect that will begin eating it and then if it's if it's even less healthy it'll be a different species so you'll have different pests depend on depending on how poor the health of the plant is but they don't cause the problem right they just come in and eat it and then we look at it and we say oh this is you know this disease of this fungus or this black rot or this insect you know aphids or whatever mm -hmm. but now we have the knowledge that they will only attack that plant and eat that plant if the plant is already unhealthy due to not being in the right terrain. And the same thing occurs within your body, according to this terrain paradigm, is that when uh, the internal milieu or environment is disrupted by um, lack of resources, for example, so like malnutrition uh, or dehydration, or from, you know, toxic waste. And that could be waste from your own body's metabolism, but most likely it is from man-made substances that we can't help but getting into our body because of our modern uh, lifestyle and um, industrial exploits. And those things disrupt the terrain, just like physical trauma would also disrupt the terrain, right? Uh, by a cut, a broken bone, etc. And that that imbalance and disruption is what brings about a state of poor health or disease, if you will. Cool. That's really interesting. <clears throat> and and that would that doesn't necessarily I, I I don't know what I'm trying to say here. It that ties into the whole viruses have never been shown to cause disease type of thing too well you know it's it's not only that they haven't been shown to cause disease they haven't actually been shown to exist right. Right. so they they do experiments where they say it's it causes a disease but they're not actually using a virus in the experiment <laughs> they're using a the fluid from a cell culture experiment which they never actually demonstrated the virus to be a part of right. so you know, it's a it's a whole farce. And, you know, before I realized that these things were not the cause of, of disease, I, I did become awakened to natural healing. And this happened when a friend of mine suggested I read Kelly Brogan's book, A Mind of Your Own. And in it, she yes. reported, you know, having amazing results with people with uh, psychiatric diagnoses. And in mainstream psychiatry, there's no amazing results. There, there's not even uh, barely acceptable results. There's only crappy, poor results. And I saw how these drugs were not, were not helping, 
and how they could even cause a variety of harm, like causing sudden death, for example. You know, we thought that these uh, vaccine injections were the first thing to cause massive sudden death, but antipsychotics have caused lots of sudden death in children and adolescents. There's a very large study out of Tennessee that people can look into if uh, they want to investigate that further with all the Medicaid recipients there. So when I heard about this, I thought, you know, I'm going to maybe have an opportunity to try this. And a former colleague of mine got in touch with me with some long-standing anxiety issues and was looking for a referral. And I said, hey, do you want to try this, you know, diet and see if it makes a difference? And lo and behold, a month later, she was in remission. And over the next several months, we figured out that uh, her problem was actually seemed to be caused by gluten-containing foods or, hmm. you know, by bread. Yeah. And I can't con conclusively say it was the gluten because we didn't, you know, she didn't take gluten pills by themselves, right? But right. clearly it was, it was something, it was the food. It was this bread. When she went to Italy and had bread and pasta there, she had no problem. But when she challenged herself again in North America, uh, she had a, a, you know, return of the anxiety. And so this was kind of my first real experience, um, you know, witnessing this. But, of course, once I saw this improvement, I'd never seen anyone achieve a remission from anxiety before in my career up to that point, And I'd never even heard about any cases of such a thing. It was something you just have to manage for the rest of, the, of your life, right? So when I saw this, I, I dove very deeply into study and into... Um, you know, doing things. And I kind of, over two years, I observed this pattern. I'm like, every, all these stories where people are having miracles, like they're being cured from diseases we're told to have no cure, they're doing similar things. And I'm like, what is it? What's the common theme? And found out it was, it was detoxing, you know, and I had heard about detoxing. I thought that's ridiculous. What we're not, you know, we're not poisoned <laughs> back at, at the time. <laughs> but but now I'm seeing that, you know, people are getting better from neurologic disease like MS, from autoimmune disease, from heart disease, all. Well, you just muted. <clears throat> Can you hear me? I can't hear you. Wait, is it me? Nish, can you hear him? I can't hear him either. Okay, it's not us. It's like your microphone switched inputs. Sorry. Is that better? Yep. Yes. Okay. I can hear both ears now. My uh, cord just came loose. Oh, no, you went out again, doctor. Did he or did he just trail off? No, I, I, I didn't say anything. Am I, are you hearing me? Yeah, but you're really low. Wow. But it's okay. We're almost done. What about now? Is that Perfect. Uh, any better? Perfect. Great, great. Okay. Yes. Sorry. No, no, that's uh, technical failure. <laughs> I, had, I, th I, I think it's a mercury retrograde right now. So, <laughs> I, One of these things that I was curious about as you were just getting into this particular segment, and I know we're short on time here, have you looked into any of the studies with methylene blue and the cognition stuff? But also there seems to be evidence and again, I don't know what that means anymore because there's so much chicanery going on that um, anxiety and depression are affected by methylene blue. Well, you know, there's a problem studying anxiety and depression because, like I was saying at the beginning, there's no way to identify exactly what you're dealing with there. So so it could be very, very challenging. I, I haven't specifically looked into methylene blue because my ethos is really about using only materials from nature but i can tell you that there there is some real research actually supporting natural healing 
Um, there aren't too many carefully, you know, uh, placebo-controlled trials or to that level, but there is but there is a lot of evidence to support, for example, that toxicity is uh, a major cause of disease. And that could be something that I'm really delving into now, where they look for industrial chemicals in bodily tissues. And what I'm seeing is that PCBs, dioxin, microplastics are found in nearly everyone's body in nearly all the organs and tissues in your body. Hmm. And we know these things are poisonous uh, from a variety of other uh, studies. So, so we have this kind of evidence. And then there are um, lots of animal studies uh, and some human studies with things like cilantro tincture, which is uh, hmm. something that I actually offer. And it's quite amazing because what they did was they took laboratory animals and they exposed them to poisonous heavy metals like lead. And then half of the animals, they gave this cilantro tincture. And, you know, in this study, they use methanol, which causes blindness. So <laughs> <laughs> it, it was like they stacked the deck against themselves. But what happened was not only did because the, after they did this experiment, of course, they sacrificed the animals and then they examined their tissues. And what they found was that in the group given cilantro, that not only did the lead was gone, but actually there was the tissue damage was reversed. Hmm. Whereas in the other group, they had lead and tissue damage. So, you know, this is really incredible that nature offers us compounds like this and there are similar studies uh with zeolite uh, you know another product yeah. uh, yes. that i that i recommend so even though there's not a you know even small acceptance in the mainstream of this approach to health and healing you can find studies that show tremendous you dipped out again powers that be don't want us to talk yeah because we're getting into natural ways <laughs> of course of course <laughs> there you go you're back okay for some reason this the usb plug is just i'm not nothing's moving here i'm totally stationary but it keeps uh, slipping out of course. We're talking natural ways. <laughs> yeah, so I think if if we were able to do large randomized control clinical trials uh, with some of these materials, there would be... Uh, it slipped. It slipped again. <clears throat> Switch to a crappy microphone if you want. What, whatever. For the rest, would that be better? Just hold it in and we'll just... We'll, we'll wrap it up and <laughs> I was holding it when it went out the last time. Oh really? <laughs> well go ahead, yeah. go ahead and finish your thought. <clears throat> we will let you go. Well, I mean my my main experience is that when I worked with clients and taught them about detox protocols, they had amazing results. I mean their health problems completely reversed in many such circumstances and a wide variety of things from uh, cancer even autoimmune disease seems to respond extremely well um, heart disease uh, some developmental disorders autism multiple sclerosis so many many conditions um, right now I'm working with someone who's on the transplant list for a new liver and we're trying to reverse the liver disease uh, mm -hmm. before, before that deadline of the, uh, the transfer uh, wait list or the transplant wait list. Oh, that's very cool. So there's uh, enormous, enormous potential here, and we've been held back by the allopathic system. What, I have one, one question here. I, I had an autoimmune issue big, and I went natural a long time ago, and it totally went into remission. 
but I'm wondering your thoughts on, and I'll, this will be my final question. The Gearson therapy, basically. <sighs> I was going to ask about that. <laughs> yeah. Wh what do you think about that? Well, I'm a, I'm a pretty big proponent of Gerson. I have one little quip with it that they took out the liver juice and changed it to liver pills and pretend to be on a vegetarian diet uh, because the liver is a key um, co nutritional component for success. Mm. But aside from that, um, Gerson clearly has a very excellent track record with many types of cancer and with many other uh, serious illnesses. And it's something that anyone who asks me about cancer, um, I always um, bring this up as one of the first options that's that's out there. And it also Gerson therapy is what introduced me to the coffee enema. And yes. I found uh, the coffee enema to be um, extremely beneficial um, if, for general cleansing and specifically for, for the liver. And uh, in my opinion, it's the best way to uh, really help your liver heal. Yeah. So, so I would definitely, you know, look into uh, the Gerson Institute and uh, Gerson therapy um, if you're having a health problem, and especially if you like, if you like juicing and enemas, because you'll be doing a lot <laughs> of it. It reversed my terminal uh, situation 100%. And that's why I asked without front loading it. So but I know there's a lot of people that do not like it and get all uppity about it. Well, look, there's nature provides redundancy. So there's always other methods that other approaches you can take. And I, I think it's good to have personal choice because if you find something that really matches with your belief system, your worldview, um, and that would increase your motivation, that would actually increase your chance of success. So I, I always teach people about options, but that is one of the options that has the most evidence of a successful track record. And it's just why it's way up there on my list, but it's not the only uh, path. So if you don't like it, that's okay. There's other options like water fasting, for example, uh, which can be also just as successful. Yeah. Yep. Great. Well, th this has been fascinating. I could talk to you for hours, <laughs> but we have very little time. But thank you. Uh, why don't you tell people where they can find you and anything new you've got coming out or should people should be aware of? Yes, please uh, find me on uh, various video platforms like Odyssey, uh, my YouTube and Instagram, as well as my website, andrewkaufmanmd.com. I'm very excited because um, tomorrow is the opening launch of my new membership platform, the True Living Fellowship. And this is a place where, you know, it's the next step once we realized that COVID was a scam and <laughs> germ theory and medicine are corrupt. Uh, where do we go next? You know, how do we learn about the other corrupt institutions? How do we Oh, you've died again. I'm sorry. There you go. It's, all right. So, you know, how do we learn to live uh, now that we have this new knowledge and embody the truth in our lives? So it's a community and uh, many, many educational resources and media and webinars. So uh, please look for that on my website, the True Living Fellowship, and uh, check it out. Right. It's the, been a real pleasure, Dr. Kaufman. Yes, very much so. Does I had one question about the fellowship and that whole... Uh, organization you're setting up does that have anything to do with or is tom cowan involved with his new biology is that all part of what you guys are building are are you working together with that or is it separate or well no no we we're working uh separate but in parallel okay. and uh we we have a pillar related to the new biology as well um because you know we're basically realized that the what we're told about biology is not accurate. So mm. we have to, but it's, it's beyond biology because it involves physics and chemistry as right. well, geology, uh, you know, atmospheric science. So we are trying to be comprehensive and we're also not just sticking with science. <laughs> you cut out again. <laughs> I'm sorry. 
That's all right. It's got to be yeah, annoying. I'm sorry. It is. But um, we're not going to be talking about just science. We're going to be covering law, uh, family, okay. education, awesome, nature, technology, um, spirituality. So really. Ooh, sounds wonderful. We want to cover uh, every aspect of your daily life. Great. Holistic. Holistic. All right. Well, thank you very much. Uh, we really appreciate your time and hope we could talk again sometime about whatever. Don't care. <laughs> Just love talking to you. All right. Thank you very much, Dr. Kaufman, and hope to see you again sometime and appreciate your time. All right. You're very welcome. It was right. a treat. All right. Take care.